Well, good morning. Good to be with you today. And um, we're going to do something a little different today. We have been in the book of Revelation the last couple of weeks, and we're going to hit pause on our series uh, this morning and go to the book. Of, we're going to go from the last book of the Bible to the first book. Um, so if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and find your place in Genesis chapter 22, and uh, we'll pick up next week. We're in a series right now, if you're new with us, uh, on the seven churches of Revelation, and uh, we'll pick up back there next week uh, with the church uh, in Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. We'll be there next week, but this week... Um, a significant uh, day in the life of our church. And so if you would, um, we're just going to kind of take a little break and we're going to dive into Genesis chapter 22 this morning. Um, you may be familiar with the various names of God and titles for God in the Bible um, to give you some of them. Uh, we know from Genesis 1 through 3, we read in that account of creation and God reveals himself there as Elohim is the name that's used for God there. It means creator God, the powerful God. Uh, another name we see is El Elyon, God Most High. El Shaddai, uh, the Almighty God, um, All-Sufficient God. Uh, Adonai means master or owner or Lord. These are all words in the Hebrew um, that are used um, for God, and then obviously there's that personal name for God that we know, uh, Yahweh, or sometimes Jehovah. It is said, and uh, it means the covenant God, the the self-existent God, the personal God, the God that you can know, the God that makes promises and keeps promises to His people. And today, we're going to encounter one of the compounds of that name throughout the Bible. Uh, you see Jehovah or Yahweh compounded uh, with a title that helps reveal something about this personal God that you can know. And you may have heard of the title before. Uh, Jireh, Jehovah Jireh, or Yahweh Jireh, which means the Lord provides, right? God as provider. And that phrase as a name is actually only revealed one time in all the Bible, even though that's probably one of the more popular of those names that we that we toss around, you, that you've heard used before. Um, but it's actually used uh, for the first and only time in Genesis chapter 22. And the name means um, the Lord provides Yahweh, Yahweh Jireh, Jehovah Jireh. It means the word there for provision, Jireh, means to see before. And the idea is that God sees our need before we see our need, and God meets so God can meet our needs because God can see our needs before we even know we have our needs. He's the God who sees and the God who meets needs. He's the provider. And so, it is in Genesis twenty-two that we encounter that name. Now. If the Bible tells us that the Lord is provider, as we're going to see this morning, so I'm kind of giving away some of the message right before we ever get into it. How does that mean that we should respond? How do you respond if God is your provider, if he's the one that meets your needs? What is our role in responding to him? Well, I believe that would be to, to believe that, right? <laughs> to trust him, right? Uh, to trust that he, in fact, is our provider, to trust him with everything and to provide for all of our needs. You know, Psalm 910 uh, the psalmist said it this way, Those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. When we know and understand God's character and his name and who he is as provider, we will trust him. We will, we will with wild abandon, be willing to relinquish all things and to trust him with all of our heart, the better we know him. And the Bible is full of stories of people who had to learn to trust God and his provision at various times in various ways. Uh, we, we talked not long ago. We went through the book of Ruth here just a few weeks ago and saw that in Ruth's life and Naomi's life. The Bible is full of these faith-building stories. Some of you can identify. You've seen God come through 
in miraculous ways through your years of following Christ, in a relationship, in your marriage, uh, in, a, in a business situation, in your finances, a, a struggle that maybe you had that was personal that nobody knows about but you and God. In those moments when you see God come through, you see Him provide whatever it is you need, whether it's comfort or peace or friendship or finances or a job or, or health or whatever it is, those are faith-building moments. And many times they happen in seasons of life that are just hard. Seasons of life that are that are difficult, but these moments they they don't shrink your faith; they grow your faith because you experience what you know in your head and your heart to be true. You experience in practical life situations, and it grows your faith. And one man in the Bible that had to learn this was a man by the name of Abraham, and that's whose story we see in Genesis twenty-two, and where this term Jehovah Jireh um, is found. And so, just kind of catch you up. To what's going on in Abraham's life in Genesis 22, if you're not familiar. Um, Abraham was an individual that God called um, to come out from uh, pagan society and to be his. And to worship him and to know him. And it was from Abraham that God was going to build a mighty nation and a mighty people. And that's found in Genesis 12. The call of Abraham in Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3. God calls him to leave his homeland and his kindred and... And to go to a new land. And he promises childless Abraham at that time that he would ultimately be a great nation. Quite a valiant, big promise coming from God. And then when you get to Genesis 15, the first six verses there, God tells Abraham that he's going to give him a son. And that his son's going to be this heir. That he's going to be, you know, the father of many nations and all that. And, And how can he be the father of many nations, though? If he doesn't have a son. And that's kind of the tension in that passage. God's telling him he's going to give him a son. And Abraham's, you know, Abraham's having to learn to trust and believe God for this. And because Abraham has this in his mind that, well, maybe one of my, one of my servants, I can kind of have him like a son and he can ultimately be the heir. And God says, no, your very own son is ultimately going to be the heir. God's going to provide you a son. And then in Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah, his wife, they grow impatient. And Sarah devises a plan that says, well, maybe my servant over here, she can bear a child for Abraham. Because we want to see, we want him to have his own son. He, he's all clinging to this promise now of the Lord. And the Bible says that Abraham believed his wife. And in this situation, uh, listening to his wife wasn't a good thing because she was leading him astray. And uh, in this one particular situation, okay? And so he listens to his wife and they go off on this path that's diverting from God's plan. God wanted them to wait. God was going to give them a son. But instead of waiting, they go off on this other plan and you end up with Ishmael. And so Abraham says, well, maybe he can be the son of the promise that God's promised me. I'd be a mighty nation. God has promised me these great promises that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed in me and all this sort of stuff. And, and then Genesis 17 and 18, God comes and he tells him, he tells, he tells him, hey, listen, Ishmael is not going to be the son of the covenant, but Abraham and Sarah are going to have a child. And they laugh at him. They laugh at him. And Sarah kind of laughs in unbelief. Because <laughs> they're getting up to an age in their 90s now that it's kind of hard to believe that they're going to be you know, having children. So this is, it's kind of funny to them. And then in Genesis 21, Isaac's born to Sarah from Abraham. And what we see in Abraham's life is he's come to a place where he's had to learn to trust God to provide. 
right? That God is provider. And when God says, I'm going to give you a son, God's going to give you a son. And that it's not your job to go out there and, and, and try to find a way to get that son apart from waiting on God to do it the way God said he was going to do it. And so we come to this place in Abraham's life in Genesis 22. And we're asking the question, has Abraham finally learned his lesson? Is he relinquished control to God? And is he trusting God as his provider, as being in control? And is he living by faith? And that's where we pick up in Genesis chapter 22. And what we're going to do is we're just going to kind of read chunk by chunk. I'm going to stop talk about it and kind of give you application points as we go along. So first here, first little scene here we have is God's test of Abraham starting in verse 1 of chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And by the way, if God calls your name, that's the way to respond uh, right here. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now let's pause here because this is groundbreaking. Some time has passed in Abraham's life. He's seen God come through in all these different ways. And now God has given him a son and it is this son Isaac who is the one who is going to be the fulfillment of this promise. So a lot of what Abraham knows about God is represented in Isaac. When he looks at Isaac, Abraham sees God's promises. He sees God's faithfulness. He sees everything he's learned to know to be true about God. He looks at his little boy or he looks at his son. I'm not real sure exactly what age he is at this point. And he believes. He looks at him and he sees and he believes that God is faithful, right? And he believes that God's going to fulfill this promise because he gave him a son at this late stage in life. And now God tells him to go sacrifice him as a burnt offering. This is strange. But the Bible's alluding to something there in the first verse when it says that God tested Abraham. It's letting us know that Isaac, it's kind of alluding to the fact that Isaac's going to survive this. This is a, this is a test. God's test of Abraham is going to show two things. Something about Abraham, his character. Would he fear God, trust God, and obey God? And something about God. Will he provide? Will he come through? Or is he going to have him kill his child? And the crux of the test is on that phrase there, your son, your only son you love. Now, he had another son by the name of Ishmael, who he has now sent off and is no longer living with him. But he's not the son of the promise. What God is saying here is not that he's the only son that you've ever had, but he's the, he's the only one who I've promised to fulfill the promise through. And he's the only one that's, that, that you can even find right now and locate. He's the one that's, that's still with you. And he's a unique son. He, he, he's... he's Kind of like Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, right? And we're all through faith in Christ, children of God. But Jesus is the unique Son of God. And Isaac was Abraham's unique son. It was the son that represented the promise. And would God not fulfill his covenant? Has God changed his mind? What's going on? And the first big takeaway we see here as we pause at this point in the text is God, the God who provides for us, will test us. And he will test our faith in his provision. God's provision in our life does not mean we escape his testing. Testing is meant to prove and sharpen our faith. And in our testing, the certainty is that God will be found faithful. The question is, will we? Right? That's always what happens because two things are on center stage when this happens. Our faith and God's faithfulness. And that's what we see here in the life of Abraham. Will he be faithful? Look at verse 3 to Abraham's response. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw that place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took, his hand, took in his hand the fire and the knife. 
So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order, in, in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So Abraham responds to God's call, his test, in the only really appropriate way, if this is God talking, and it's in obedience. And it really seems kind of shocking, right, that he obeys this. This is what, there was a journey um, to get there. He had lots of time to change his mind. He gets there on the third day, right? This was a couple of days hike um, to get up this mountain. And so he's got plenty of time to negotiate this in his mind or ne- renegotiate this in his mind with the Lord and plenty of time to just back out, right? But he just stays the course. Now, you need to understand the fact, like I said earlier, this is called a test, is alluding to us that Isaac's going to survive this. God is not a God of child sacrifice. He condemns that throughout the Old Testament. This is before the law was written. But, but the point is this. If God would have had him go through with this, this would have kind of went against what Abraham had known to, to know to be true about God. But So Abraham, the interesting thing here is he doesn't try to solve this theological moral riddle in his head. He says, that's God's problem to solve. I'm just supposed to obey. God will work all this out. I don't understand it. I don't completely... It's one of those situations where he doesn't understand what's going on. All he knows is that God is faithful. So Abraham doesn't try to solve the riddle. He just trusts God and to obey God and to be faithful to God. We're going to be alluded to why he was willing to do this but here in, here in just a moment. But in this particular situation, you need to understand that it was never God's plan, ultimately, to have him kill his son. It was never... The, it was the test. And we're going to see... Why the purpose of the test here? Now, notice the clear ways that Abraham responds. He obeys in verse 3. So Abraham rose, he takes, he goes, right? He obeys. He worships in verse 5. I, the boy, will go over there and worship and will come again to you, which is just strange, right? I'm going to sacrifice my son, and this is worship. I'm going to go and I'm going to come back to you. But also notice he believes. First of all, he says, we're going to come back. He doesn't say that I'll be back even though he knows he's going to sacrifice his son in his mind, he says, we are coming back. Catch that? And in verses 7 and 8, Isaac says, where's the lamb? He says, God will provide the lamb. He's speaking from faith. So he obeys, he worships, but he believes he has faith in the God he's come to know. Commentator K.A. Matthews wrote on this, in Levitical sacrifice, the offerer himself provided the animal. Here, however, Abraham reverses the means, showing that God's command made the matter his own responsibility. In other words, it was God's job to provide the lamb because it was God's idea for this sacrifice to take place in the first place. So Abraham just goes, God will provide the lamb. We don't know exactly what Abraham knew and believed about that. But then look at verses 9 through 12 there as the drama unfolded. The knife goes in the air and Abraham's actually going to go through with this and God stops him. Because God never intended to allow him to go through with it, as we know the whole story. Now, it wasn't Isaac that God was after. 
The whole point of this was not, it really had nothing to do with Isaac personally. It had to do with Abraham, and it was Abraham and Abraham's heart that ultimately God was chasing and revealing. Abraham's faith enabled him to worship and obey the way he does in this situation. And the text shows us that he believes because he, in who God is and that God would provide in this situation because he's trusting God to provide the lamb, so he, he's willing to... Raise the knife in the air. But beyond that, the New Testament gives us an even deeper picture into Abraham's heart and mind. Why is he willing to strike a knife into the heart of his son? Well, Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Figuratively. See, Abraham was so confident that God would fulfill the promise through Isaac that he was fully convinced God would raise him from the dead if need be. That, that's how confident he is in God. That he actually believes, well, if God wants, has me kill this boy, God has promised that my offspring are coming through him, so God's going to raise him from the dead. And it's incredible faith when you consider he's never seen a resurrection. He doesn't have the Pentateuch. He doesn't have the prophets. He doesn't have the resurrection of Jesus to look at. He doesn't have what we have, but he had a firm belief so much in the promise of God and God keeping his promise as the provider in this situation that he says, God will have, I guess God will just raise him from the dead. What else can he do? He's got to do what he said he's going to do. That's just radical faith. And our point here at this point is trusting God as provider should have tangible impact on our decisions. It had tangible impact in Abraham's life. His obedience, his, his worship, and his withholding nothing from God. You see, when God tells us to do something, God will make it possible for us to do it. We can fulfill God's commands ultimately only because God makes it possible by His grace and His Holy Spirit's power. God had both told Abraham that Isaac would be the son of the promise... And he had told him to sacrifice him. And Abraham's responsibility was to obey. And it was up to God to resolve the conflict. In which he does. And what we learn here is what we do with that which is most precious to us shows us how precious God is to us. How precious and valuable God is in your sight and in your eyes and your heart will be revealed in how, what you do with the things in your life that you hold most precious and most dear. It's a revealer. It's a, it's a test. And in this situation, it's embodied in Isaac. Because Isaac represents the promise. This incredible promise that had began back in Genesis 12. And Abraham left his family and went where God told him to go. And all this is embodied in, in Isaac, who he had rated, waited years for God to give him a son. And God gives him a son through Sarah. And all this is represented there. So... Isaac is the apple of his eye, right? He, he's his most prized possession. Although we find out he's not quite. That his relationship with God is more valuable to him than even Isaac. That he, that he realizes that ultimately the reason Isaac represents the promise is because God gave the promise. And his heart is ultimately entrusted with the God of the promise. And we have to ask the question in our own lives, what is our Isaac? What are the things in our lives that we hold most valuable and most dear? The things in your life, even when you look at it, you see the hand of God. The things in your life, when you look at it, you know that God has been faithful to you. That can be a marriage, that can be a child, that can be a job, that can be a lot of different things. A miracle in your life, whatever. But ultimately, what do we hold most dear? Because we have to understand that Isaacs can become idols. If we are not willing 
offer them to God if we withhold them? Is there a better place Abraham could have put Isaac was there a better, than before the Lord? Is there anyone more trustworthy than God? Did Isaac not belong to God anyway? Was the promise not God's to keep? And if God is precious to us, then we will trust him with even the things we value the most. If we believe God is our provider, we should obey him in everything, worship him in every turn, and withhold nothing, nothing from him or no one. See, our circumstances do not change God's character, so that shouldn't keep us from radical trust and obedience in God. And Abraham understood that. His circumstances are a little different now. He's being asked to do something that just seems crazy. But he's not looking at the circumstances. He's looking at the character of the God that he's come to know. And many times God's provision is brought about in difficult circumstances. Difficult times can be the stage on which provisional miracles are seen. And God is to be worshipped and obeyed and trusted as provider even in extreme circumstances. Things looked bleak for Isaac and for Abraham when the knife's in the air. But God came through. Radical faith, right? You read the story and you're like, what faith? What incredible faith that he was going to do this. And, but there are stories like this, right? You've heard of stories, of not like this extreme, but just stories where you look at people and you kind of go, where do they get that faith? They can trust God in that way? I was reminded as I was studying this this weekend of George Mueller. George Mueller, he was a pastor who started orphanages. And he had such radical faith to believe that God was provider and that God would provide for the orphanages, he refused to ask for money. And he just, I mean, he helped thousands of orphans and he would just, money would just come in. He would just pray and ask God to give the money to take care of the orphans. For years, for decades, he stopped taking a salary and just asked God to provide for his needs and people would just send him money. Just this radical faith, right? This incredible faith that he just believed and trusted God. I'm not going to, I don't, not that there was anything wrong with him having a salary, not that there was anything wrong with him raising money. It was just, in his life, this was the way God led him to trust him and he just did it. Incredible story um, that you should you can you can check out. There's a lot of stuff online about him, George Mueller. And maybe there are areas in our life today that we need to trust God with. Areas where theologically we say, "I trust God, I believe God is my provider," but practically our life doesn't prove it out. We continue to worry, to refuse to give, to not trust God with certain areas of our life. And what does that say? Does what we say ultimately with our mouth line up? with how we're practically living. Is what we believe and our behavior, do they match? Abraham's did. And the third little scene we have here is God's provision and Abraham's blessing. Look at verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And there in verse 14 is Jehovah Jireh in the Hebrew. The Lord will provide. The Lord will see. And the angel of the Lord, it says in verse 15, called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, singular, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. So, knife's in the air, right? And God tells him, stop! Right? Don't do it! Now I know. I, I, you've, you've proven faithful. Not that God didn't already know. But now, 
It's, it's been lived out. God wants it lived out. And in verse 13, he looks over and he sees this ram. And the ram's not there by accident. It was there by provision. By provision. This wasn't good fortune. It was God's hand. It wasn't luck. It wasn't happenstance. God had provided the ram. And Abraham sacrificed it instead of Isaac. In verse 14, Abraham names the place the Lord will provide. There on that place, God provided for Abraham and Isaac. And Abraham trusted that God was who he said he was. And God provided in an incredible way. And Abraham left this moment with a new profound knowledge of God. And his relationship with God was strengthened. And God ultimately provided a ram to be sacrificed instead of Isaac as a substitute. Now, this is important because this is one of the first images in all the Bible of substitutionary atonement. What happened on the cross with Jesus. Because what God is alluding to here in this story, it's the first time in the Bible that that a human sacrifice is alluded to. That there's going to be a need for a human sacrifice. But what we're going to find out is that God's not going to ask a man, one of us, to give up our children, but that God is actually going to send His Son to be the human sacrifice. That God Himself is going to take on human flesh and become the sacrifice for our sins. And this points us to that. Because on the cross, what happened was the same thing that happened with that ram. Isaac comes off the altar. The ram goes on the altar. The ram dies in the place of Isaac. And God is pleased. And what happened on the cross was we don't go on the cross, even though we deserve to be punished for our sins. We deserve to bear the punishment for sinning against God. Jesus goes on the cross The knife comes down, right? The wrath of God comes down on Jesus in place of us, and God is satisfied. And God's wrath is absorbed by the Lord Jesus on the cross, and we know the story. Three days later, He rises from the dead, proving it worked. For our justification, showing check didn't bounce. It is really finished like He said it was. And this points us to that. You know, I know, look at verse 17 and 18. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That's Jesus. The offspring there is singular. We, a lot of times we read these verses and we think about Israel, but what you need to understand is there's going to be a single line that's going to come through Israel. And there's going to be one particular offspring that just as he was told was going to crush the head of the serpent is what he told Eve. And now there's going to be one particular offspring that's going to come as he is telling Abraham here. And through him all the nations will be blessed. That's Jesus. He's the offspring that fulfills the promise. He's the blessing ultimately that he's talking about here comes through Christ. The nations are blessed through Jesus. Galatians 3.16, Paul confirms this. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. He's the offspring. And the point we need to realize here is that God's greatest provision in our life is ultimately, ultimately realized in Christ. It's in Christ. John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible, right? God so loved the world that what He gave, what did He give? What we needed. He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shouldn't perish but have life, right? Have eternal life. God saw the need and God provided. We were perishing. We needed life. God sends Jesus, the provision, to take care of the need. And God has demonstrated His love and His provision in an incredible way. And the Father sending the Son and the Son willingly coming to die for our sins. And God giving His Son. The 
the cross shouts that God is a provider. It does. If you ever doubt or worry about God's provision in your life, look to the cross. Can God be trusted with my finances? The Lord provides. Look at Jesus. Can God be trusted with my family? Can God be trusted with my career path, my hopes, my future, my eternity? The character of God is rock solid and is exemplified in the cross of Jesus. The Lord sees your needs before you do. He has given Jesus of all things. And in Christ, your eternity is secure. And your eternal joy is secured through Him. Ken Hempful wrote a book called The Names of God. And on Jehovah Jireh, that name in this passage, he says, We are not self-sufficient. We are God-dependent. And the sooner we discover that wonderful truth, the sooner we will find the strength for daily living. And the cross shouts that. We're not self-sufficient. We're God-dependent. The cross reminds us daily that we're dependent on God to provide for us. We can't save ourselves. We can't earn forgiveness. We can't fix what's broken in our lives. The truth is, our dependence on God for salvation should teach us in every area of our life that we're dependent on God for everything. If we can't resolve and fix in our life what matters most, then we can't resolve and fix the other things in our life. I love what Romans 8 says about this. Romans 8, 31 and 32. I've quoted it before. Greatest chapter in the Bible, in my opinion. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What's Paul saying? You doubt God's provision in your life? You doubt God's hand in your life? You doubt God's protection in your life? Look at the cross. God didn't spare His Son. There's nothing that you really and truly need for lasting and eternal happiness and joy that God will withhold from you. Nothing. Now, that doesn't mean that this life's going to be easy. That doesn't mean there's not going to be difficulty and pain in this life. God sees way beyond what we see. And God's not thinking just about our lifespan. He's thinking about our eternity And in the grand scheme of things, he is working and plotting, as we've said before, for our joy. And the cross is that reminder that God is our provider in every area. He's working for our good. He provides. When Abraham didn't withhold his son, God says, I will bless you, is the words from God, because of this. He is reaffirming the promise he's already made to Abraham. The New Testament tells us clearly that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. And the point here is that ESV Study Bible great resource, by the way, points out, is that this is about the vindication of his faith. This act shows his faith is real. It makes it evident. When we trust God with what is precious to us, we show that God is most precious to us, as we showed earlier. Abraham passed that test, and because of it, he ended up knowing God a little bit better. Now look back at verse 14. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Last little takeaway for us. We need to let God's provisions mark our journey. Abraham named the place after what had happened. You catch that? He names Mount Moriah and what happens there. He names that place the Lord will provide. He was so struck by what happened that he wants to remember it. He wants other people to remember it and know about it. So that every time he or Isaac looked at that mountain, they'd think about God's provision and how God had come through. And any time Abraham or Isaac had doubts, or got discouraged, they could look back at Mount Moriah and remember the Lord will provide. Remember that mountain? I can just hear Abraham telling his son on the way back down that mountain, don't you forget what happened on this mountain. Don't you ever forget what happened on this mountain. When I held a knife over your head and you were going to let me go through with this, 
And God says, speaks out of heaven and says, stop. And we look over and there's a ram caught in the bush. And we sacrifice that ram and we worship it. Don't you ever forget what happened. And Abraham, imagine, had the faith to believe as he walked up that mountain that if God would have him go through with this and kill his son, that God would raise him from the dead. He had that kind of faith. He had that faith going up the mountain. Now stop. What kind of faith do you think he had coming back down? Think about that for a second. What did that do in his life? His faith wasn't weaker for it. Because what he had believed, he had experienced. He had tasted. So you and I have a mountain that we get to look back at. Golgotha. Mount Calvary. A mountain that we can look at and remember the Lord will provide. The cross. Where God provided for us everything we ultimately need in Christ. Where God proved and showed his love for us. And as we look and as we gaze at what happened on that mountain in Christ, it should drive us to deeper faith and deeper trust in God as our provider. And we should never forget what happened on that mountain. Now, but God also gives us moments in our journey as believers and as a body, as, as, as Christians, as, as a church, moments to mark the journey of what he has shown himself faithful in other ways. Ways where we see him provide, ways that, that mark out our faith. Many of you can tell stories about how God worked out a situation with a brother or sister in Christ that you didn't think you would ever restore that relationship and God enabled it to be restored or how God saved your marriage or how God provided a job when you didn't have an income or how God, how God provided an income when you didn't have a job and how God came through a financial crisis or a health crisis that you thought was surely the end and God came through. We see those things, right? Or... You've experienced this provision of peace and strength in the face of adversity when those other things didn't go exactly like you were hoping and praying for, but you experienced this incredible peace that surpasses all understanding that God provided for you in those moments. And those moments mark your life. And you look back at those moments as Abraham looked back at that mountain and you remember the Lord will provide. Now, our church recently got to experience one of those kind of moments for our, for our faith family. Several years ago, as many of you know, less than 10, our church decided to sell our property on Mills and relocate ultimately here to Ballin Park. And this was before I was here, um, before several of you were here, but when, when, when many of you were here. Um, and during that time, there's a lot of bouncing around, right? As y'all remember, as I don't remember, but as you remember, going different places to meet, schools, different situations. It was a difficult time for the church, um, trying to find a new home to meet in. And so if you're new here, you may not realize it, but we face some adversity, right? And then about five years ago, we were able to finally move in here and have our property and build and have the property that we have now here in Baldwin Park. So this is a church, though, that even since that time has had our share of adversity and difficulties. Everything hasn't been easy. Um, there were financial struggles in the recent history of our church. And we've seen God do incredible things that can really, only he can take the credit for in a complete financial turnaround in the history of this church. From drowning and bleeding to death to being a financially healthy church because of your generosity, God working through you in other ways, and God just providing incredibly through his people for his purposes and his needs. It's tremendous that we've seen God do and praise the Lord for it. And as we've seen this, and this year has been just an incredibly good year, in that area, as we've seen God work, the finance team has tried to continue to be good stewards of God's resources that he provides for North Park. And we recently began to look into refinancing our building debt. 
Um, we, have, we owe over a half a million dollars on this building that we're worshiping in today, which is a lot of money. Uh, and we have a, what you call a bond loan, and there's a lot of interest with those over the life of the bonds. And, and so we wanted to get out of that and get a traditional loan so that we could ultimately maybe try to pay it off quicker. And we were thinking through plans. The ideas were thrown around. Maybe we could pay this off in 15 years or 10 years. Sounded a lot better than 25 or 30 And as we were planning and as we were talking and as we were praying and as we were going through this, something miraculous happened. God paid off the debt. God provided a gift within the last couple of weeks to North Park that is more than enough to completely pay off every dime and penny we owe on the bond loans. Crazy. $680,000 we owe in interest and all. And God has saw fit to more than pay it off. It's the cherry on top, right, of our being able to see God's faithfulness to North Park over the last several years. And there's really no other way to explain it but to say God did it. And he's done it through the generosity um, of people and generosity of someone who is prompted to do this. But there's more to the story. And honestly, it's not mine to share. And so, if you want to know the testimony of how God did this, you're going to have to come to the next uh, business meeting in September. And so, it should be the best attended business meeting that we have, and you can hear the story of how God provided in this way and prompted a heart in this way, and and just the miracle He did in this person's life. I mean, it's it's just an incredible story, and I want them to share it, and they're going to share it at the next business meeting in September. What you need to know now is that God did this. And he did it for his glory, and he has proven himself time and time again to be North Park's provider. Um, Jesus, as we've said in Revelation, walks among the lampstands and cares for and provides and takes care of his church. And so in September, we'll have a, uh, our business meeting, and we'll be like good Baptists. We'll have a fellowship and a party to celebrate this, and we're going to burn that mortgage because it'll be paid off by then. And right now, we have the gift. Uh, by then, the mortgage will be paid off September 10th. And so designated gift just for that purpose, so it's great. Um, now, don't miss this. This is a marker where you stop and you pause and you think about the faithfulness of God in the life of North Park where he has shown himself faithful time and time again. And, you know, the question that comes up that people ask and that I even ask is we, is we go, now what, now what do we do, right? And the, and the truth is we just keep, we continue. We, with renewed resolve, with fortified faith, we continue to pursue God's calling on North Park in our city and in Ballin Park. We continue by God's grace to glorify Him by making disciples, by helping people trust and follow Jesus. And God has now freed us from debt. We will be debt-free. And I don't know all the reasoning. I can't go through and tell you all the reasons God might have done this. I can only give you one that I know for certain from His Word. And that is that God wants us to leverage every resource, every amount of energy and time as a local church towards Making disciples of Jesus. I know that. Everything, a lot of other things in that, I don't, that's what we can, that, it is writ. Okay, that, that's, he has said, that we know. And in a way, we're facing a new test as a church family this morning. Because it's a new day at North Park. God's at work and he's changing us and molding us. He's, pro- he's providing for us in incredible ways. And it's our responsibility to embrace the call of God to make disciples and to leverage this newfound financial freedom in a way that glorifies and honors his call on North Park. Now, there's coming a day when Ballin Park is not going to be here. And there's not going to be a building in this city that's going to stand. 
We know that there's coming a day where there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. That all these things in this stage and these buildings and this city are temporary things. But the people that live in these townhomes and condos and houses and apartments, that go to work in these strip malls and down in the village center and around downtown Orlando and all over our quadrant of the city here, they're going to live forever somewhere. Somewhere. And the good news for us is, and the privilege we have, is that God has placed North Park and other Bible-preaching, gospel-preaching churches in our city for the purpose of standing in the gap and impacting those people with the good news of the gospel and giving them the opportunity to trust the Lord Jesus and have their eternity changed. And that's what we're going to be about. And that's what we are about. And, that, and all this does, doesn't change anything other than it, it just, man, it just fires us up a little bit, right? It's, it, Abraham didn't walk off that mountain and now all of a sudden seeing God do something incredible and become like a, lot, a different person. No, he was already following. All it did was strengthen his faith. And this should strengthen our faith. It should strengthen your personal faith and encourage you personally as we see what God does in the life of our body corporately. That's what it's meant to do. And so we need to look back today as a church at what Christ has done and mark the miles of our journey by the times he has shown himself faithful and as provider in our personal lives and in our corporate lives and most importantly and supremely in his cross. And we need to make it a point to recommit ourselves to helping people trust and follow Jesus, to making disciples, to being a church that's committed to our community and to our city. So to wrap up today, remember... So we saw with Abraham, the God who provides for us will test us. He will test us. And trusting God as provider should have tangible impact on our decisions and how we leverage our decisions. And God's provision is ultimately realized in Christ. That's the supreme example in the way God's provided. And as we are on this journey following Christ, we need to let God's provisions in our life and the life of our church mark our journey and remind us of God's faithfulness. So you today... Have you, first of all, trusted Jesus in the provision that God has provided in Christ for your salvation? Do you know him personally? The greatest miracle that we've talked about today is that one. That God would save a human soul. That God would save somebody by sending his own son to bleed and die for him on a cross and be raised from the dead. Do you know God? And maybe today you're in a test. Maybe you're a believer and you're going through something difficult, and I would just encourage you, like Abraham, to worship God in the midst of that test, to obey Him, to trust Him, and to do what you know to do when you don't know what to do, and that He can build your faith through it. And then I would just ask you the question, are you living your life like God is your provider? Does your worship and your obedience reflect that? Are you withholding things from God? Is everything on the table with your relationship with the Lord? Do your actions support your theology? Does what you do support what you believe? What's your next step of faith? Not just ours as a community of faith, but yours personally as a believer. What is, what is God prompting you to do? How are you seeing God work? What does God want you to do to further exemplify your faith and your trust in Him as the one who's in control and has provided you?